But we are starting the show today taking a look at what has changed in this province when it comes specifically to managing COVID-19 at home and the rules around isolation, how long people have to isolate and when they can go back to work or if you're a child back into a daycare setting, back into a school setting. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Dr. Heidi Torek, Associate Professor of International History and Public Policy at UBC. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, good day. Uh, can we talk a little bit about, so these were some changes that were made and the BC Centre of Disease Control actually put out a statement saying that they apologized that it was just put on the web uh, the website and that the changes uh, might have surprised some people or caused some confusion. So the changes now are that if you have mild symptoms and you don't need a COVID-19 test, the idea is stay at home until you feel feel well enough to return to your regular activities. So what are your thoughts on that being one of the changes? Yeah, so of course this is um, happening within the, the broader context of how the Omicron variant has changed BC's approach to um, testing and so on, you know, really sort of acknowledging there basically aren't enough tests to, to test everybody who is symptomatic. And so these changes are, I think, part part of that. And communicating around that has been a challenge really for the last uh, month and a half. And so this, this confusion feels like another phase in the confusion around uh, Omicron testing and isolation. Is it something, though, that you think, is it being done because of the lack of tests or testing capability in that? I mean, is it a decision that that would make sense even if we had unlimited testing? Or is this really something that's being done because whereas we would like to see the testing, we just don't have the capacity? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And as a a not epidemiologist, (laughs) I don't want to speculate too much. But what I will say is that I think your question is genuine and real. It's my question as well. And I I think it would be something where um, addressing these sorts of concerns a bit more head on would be very helpful um, because we do see other jurisdictions where widespread testing is a norm and actually other jurisdictions really leaping into action to provide more testing. So, for example, in the United States, just this week, the Biden administration has opened up a website that allows every household in the U.S. to order four free COVID tests. So we actually see um, under public pressure, some administrations moving in a different direction. I think having some open and honest conversations about where guidelines are coming from would be very helpful in D.C. for rebuilding some trust. Right. Okay. In in the meantime, while we don't seem to have the that access to what we're seeing, like you mentioned in the states or even in some other provinces, one of the other guidelines then is that if you do test positive for COVID nineteen, if you've been able to get a test and you do have that, if you are under eighteen or fully vaccinated, stay home, isolate at home for five days and or until your symptoms improve, you no longer have a fever, and then it seems like you're okay to kind of go back into the mix. The other one as well was daycares, that if you if you isolate, if your symptoms are gone, that yes, you can you can go back. And also, if you've been exposed to somebody, uh, that's okay. You can you can go as long as you don't develop symptoms. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I just I just really genuinely love to ask some questions about this. And I'm, I'm sure that I'm not the only one just trying to really understand what are the sort of scientific guidelines on which they're drawing. So, for example, when the American CDC announced that they were dropping the isolation period to five days, 
then there were a whole host of questions around that. What scientific studies was it based on? And, and it seems to have been quite political in a whole host of ways in in the US. And there was a sort of rigorous debate in public about what's the sort of scientific guidelines underlining that, including what we know about how long you might be infectious with Omicron and whether you would remain infectious if you no longer had symptoms. So I think that kind of open dialogue is actually very helpful because we really want to understand why guidelines are being issued in the way that they are. So just changing on a website is, I think, not going to be enough to reassure people that these guidelines make sense. There needs to be much more communication around it. Um, And giving many people who honestly have become amateur epidemiologists at this point, they really want to understand more. This is a public that where many people are now deeply informed and they have a bunch of questions and it's important, I think, to answer them to, to ensure that there's trust in these guidelines. Uh, do you think we know enough or given even what we've seen with the Omicron variant, uh, because it has changed. And, and like we've been talking about, I think everybody either has has been exposed, has either had COVID now or knows people who has had COVID. I mean, I know a, a close friend, a family where three of them ended up getting it. One didn't. And one of them, one of the kids after two had recovered, one of the kids tested positive 10 days later. I mean, maybe it was from a different exposure. We'll never know. But also because of a lack of testing, it does leave a lot of questions. Yes, I mean, certainly it it does leave a lot of questions. And of course, there are always sort of exceptions to every rule, including how long people are infectious, right? And we see different jurisdictions around the world taking now quite different paths. For example, if if you wanted to travel to Hong Kong, you would be isolating for 21 days, right? Which seems very different than, of course, uh, what is happening here. And I think we're also in BC in this very, very different moment, you know, the in the first months of the pandemic, it was quite hard to find someone who knew a person who'd had COVID. And now we're in a completely different sort of world. And I think helping people to understand why is it that that we think this world is okay? What do vaccines do for us with the Omicron variant? What don't they do? And answering, I think, questions that people have about things like, um, what about long COVID? What do we know about that and Omicron? Or what are the suggestions and what is the reasoning behind, for example, uh, mask guidance? So I think basically being, being really open and trying to answer those questions and being clear about what we know about the Omicron variant and what we don't know, because it's still, you know, only a couple of months old. And we talked, too, about learning from what's happening in other jurisdictions and jurisdictions, too, that appear to be kind of ahead of us here in B.C. And you mentioned Hong Kong with the the 21 days. Yesterday on this program, I was playing some of the comments uh, of Boris Johnson in the U.K. saying we're almost to the point where masks are gone. We're going to get rid of the vaccine card. Everything's going to be gone um, as far as restrictions by the end of March. Do Do you think it causes more kind of chaos having different these different responses in different countries? and trying to figure out what is the best way to go about dealing with this? Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that can be very confusing. And maybe I'll say as a, as a very, very baseline point that every pandemic is global. And that sounds like a sort of phrase that, that is very much a plash to you, but it's truly important because without having a greater rate of global vaccination, we find ourselves in six months potentially in a situation with another variant. And I'd remind people that um, in the UK, there was a declared Freedom Day in July of last year when supposedly all restrictions will be gone forever and ever. And then six months later, of course, um, the UK found itself in a very different situation with Omicron. So um, we should be very aware that without solving the global nature of this pandemic and ensuring that countries like Canada really step up to what they promised with donations to things like COVAX in terms of vaccines. Without that, um, we will continue to find ourselves in these kinds of cycles. So I think in these discussions, we need to bring that point on the table as well.
And when we're talking about things like that, like that, that are public policy, and when we've been in this for this length of time now, is there also the fear of people, uh, people that may have been signed on wholeheartedly in this 100%, yes, we're going to do this and get through this, are tired? And do we lose people? Do we lose that momentum? And people see other countries and places opening up and just want to get there? Yeah, I mean, I think you <laughs> one could call it fatalism, perhaps, right? That the sense that it's inevitable that I'm going to get COVID, so why does it matter? And I would say there's another way, one other way of thinking about this is almost all of us are going to encounter um, Omicron or COVID if we haven't already, but whether we catch it or not depends upon um, what some doctors, epidemiologists and others have called a vaccine plus strategy. Um, so things, of course, look very different than, than 2020, but thinking about those vaccine plus strategies and, and how we then learn to live with with COVID um, doesn't mean pretending it doesn't exist or a fatalism. It means really figuring out that the tools to deal with um, this disease, both locally and globally. Right. The whole idea of it's a good way of putting it that you'll be exposed, but the, the extent of which you are either kind of knocked down or, or dealing with it really does depend on those other factors, including vaccination. Yeah, exactly. And just because you're exposed to it doesn't mean that you will contract it, right? We have uh, doctors who've been working with COVID cases every day for two years um, in the province of BC who have yet to contract COVID. And what that tells us is that those layers of protection, vaccines, masks, et cetera, et cetera, are exceedingly effective. And so um, fatalism sometimes means we give up on those layers of protection. But my point is that they actually do work and we need to keep communicating around how they work and why they work. All right. Uh, Dr. Heidi Torek, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being with us. Well, as we were getting ready to talk about this and the anonymous tips that were made to Crime Stoppers in the past year, as you heard on the news, another shooting this time in the Guilford area of Surrey, Surrey RCMP, saying it's too early to say if this is connected to other shootings that have happened in Metro Vancouver. But this comes on the same day as well that the Combined Forces Special Unit put out to release. They just had a news conference talking about the number of gang-related shootings and the fact that we are seeing more innocent bystanders being injured in these shootings. So we can talk about that. But right now, we want to check in with Linda Annis, who is the Executive Director of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. Linda, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, this uh, release uh, with these numbers came out before we even uh, found out about this latest shooting and, and the violence that we've seen just today. But let's talk about these numbers because this is specifically looking at anonymous tips and how they do help get to arrests being made, particularly in gang-related activities. They sure do. Oftentimes people are afraid for their own personal safety, so don't report to the police. And Crime Stoppers really provides people with the opportunity to leave information about suspected gang or gun activity anonymously. So no one ever knows if who's called or where they live and if the individual is arrested, uh, the person that has left the information with Crime Stoppers doesn't go to court, doesn't have to testify. And I would imagine that would be a big barrier because even though you're told it's anonymous and that it's safe, there is still, I would think, the mindset for people thinking, well, yeah, it is safe, but maybe I don't want to get involved. And that's where Crime Stoppers really steps in. We're not the police. We're an independent agency. And we get the information. We make sure that your anonymity is 100% uh, 
protected, and then we pass the information on to the police. So you never, ever talk to the police if you call Crime Stoppers. All right. Um, how many numbers or how do the numbers compare if you look at the statistics for 2021 as far as the tips and, and what they led to? How do those numbers compare to previous years? The tip numbers are down slightly um, this year as opposed to the previous year, uh, which is good news because a lot of those tips, the uh, the difference relates to a bunch of anti-racist uh, information that we were getting at the beginning of COVID. And thankfully, the Crime Stoppers program worked well, and that uh, has been minimal now. Oh, okay. And was that expected or was that kind of, did that, was that kind of a surprise? Uh, no, it wasn't really a surprise. We had hoped, um, you know, when you leave information with Crime Stoppers that it does the job, and uh, we have had less reporting about um, anti-racist uh, comments or hate crimes uh, than we did the previous year. All right. Uh, the, I understand, too, then, that looking at those numbers, more than 600 anonymous tips about those activities that have been deemed gang-related and weapons. Uh, they, they have really helped, though, as far as making arrests or helping police and law enforcement make arrests. They sure have, and I would really encourage anybody that knows anything about suspected gang activity or illegal guns to call us. And, you know, the beauty of our program, too, we're open 24 hours, seven days a week. And if you don't speak English uh, and you want to leave us information in another language, we can help you out, too. All right. So, so really accessible to, to people for anybody that might have information. Anybody that has information, the police can't be everywhere and they rely on the public to provide them with information that will help them get the job done and arrest those individuals that are involved in gang activity. And when we, we look at this as well, and we've known, and people will know, we're seeing the commercials and from you talking about it, that there are rewards for information when it does lead to the arrest of a criminal, the recovery of stolen property, that kind of thing. Do people generally take it or do people generally want the reward? No, very few people actually collect the reward. Most people use the Crime Stopper service because of the uh, opportunity to leave information anonymously. I think that's the most important thing to people, and they want to do the right thing and make sure that the information gets over to the police. All right. And given what we know uh, today, uh, as I mentioned, there's another shooting that police are investigating today. Uh, That comes literally on the heels of a news conference where uh, police were talking about or the Combined combined Forces uh, Union was talking about the fact there have been a number of innocent bystanders hit recently in this ongoing gang activity. Uh, Is it Hearing stories like that, do you think that people see and hear that and and kind of that prompts them as well to to get involved and to tell Crime Stoppers what they know? I think it does. And I really am reaching out to everyone. If you know something, call Crime Stoppers. If you don't want to deal with the police, you can save a life uh, or many lives. You know, we have to get the guns off the street. Do you have an idea then on how many uh, illegal guns have been seized uh, directly related to tips to Crime Stoppers? 
Well, this past year alone, uh, there was 32 guns that were seized. A few years ago, we ran a, a marketing campaign encouraging people to report. When we did that, over 200 guns were taken off the street. And we are launching another campaign to just remind people of the importance that if you know someone that has illegal guns or someone that's involved in gang activity, that you need to do something about it and call either the police or Crime Stoppers. Do people generally call then from their phones? And again, not to to, st- to stay on the anonymity part of this too much, but I am quite fascinated by how people make that decision to call. And again, with concerns about staying anonymous, do people generally call from their own phones or do they find a pay phone or is there any kind of pattern there? Well, there's not too many pay phones out there these days, but we don't really know where people are calling from or... Um, you know, how they're reaching out to us because of the anonymity piece. So we don't track any phone numbers. We don't have any of that information. But people can call us at 1-800-222-TIPS. The other option that they can do is they can visit our website, solvecrime.ca, and leave a tip. There's a form there that can be completed, and we don't track any IP addresses, so we don't know where they're coming from. And we also have an app as well. P3 that people can download and uh, leave tips that way or or check to see if someone is wanted. All right. Uh, You mentioned that there is going to be another campaign as far as getting illegal guns off the streets and and that. Are there other areas that specifically, I know it's all crime, but are there other areas specifically that Crime Stoppers is focused on as far as really trying to tackle that area of crime? We really are focused primarily on, you know, gang activity. We want to get tips about that, but we want tips about everything. Sometimes crimes seem like they're very small, but when once the police, um, you know, peel the onion back, so to speak, they find out that there's a whole lot more involved. So even if it's something that seems inconsequential, please give us a call and let us and the police decide whether or not um, uh, this information uh, is useful or not. And when you hear about these stories, uh, you uh, with your involvement in Crime Stoppers, uh, with your involvement on Surrey City Council, when you hear these stories that there's been another shooting today in the Guilford area, when we hear from the Combined Forces Unit that there have been bystanders hit, injured in these shootings, how do you respond to that? I'm saddened by it. You know, we need to get ahead of this. We need to do more uh, prevention programs. Kids as early as eight, nine, ten years old can be identified as having a high probability of entering gang lifestyle. We need to be working closely with those kids and with their families to get the kids back on track. And, you know, as a city councillor, I'm very, very proud of the work that we're doing with our SAFE program in Surrey. And it's just that. It's getting kids um, young and working with them and their families to try to correct their lifestyle. All right. Well, interesting numbers and uh, the work being done to get these illegal guns and drugs and such off the streets and to get to these arrests. Uh, Linda Annis, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure, Jill. All right, that is Linda Annis, the Executive Director of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, it's a video that is quite shocking, and it is a news reporter setting up for a live hit in the dark for the, I think it was the 11 o'clock news. It was one of the later newscasts of the day, setting up to talk about extreme weather and a water main break. And what happened to her 
Well, she's lucky to be okay, but it has raised a lot of questions about safety, particularly in that job. We'll take a look at that when we return. Well, remember the tsunami warning that was in place for the BC coast and kind of waking up, I don't know about you, not maybe not waking up, but looking to your phone, seeing the tsunami warning and thinking, ooh, well, that's not good, especially given it was linked to an event that happened so far, far away. But many parts of the BC coast were on tsunami alert, and I think everybody was able to breathe a sigh of relief when that alert was cancelled. But we're now learning that it appears a barge became dislodged and caused some damage to a water supply on the West Coast. And joining me to talk more about this is Mako Noel, the mayor of Euclid. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill. How are you today? Uh, very well. How about you? Well, good. Like you said, it's, uh, we were fortunate it turned out to be an advisory on Saturday morning because we're always anticipating that's eventually going to hit our shoreline. Yeah, which is, I, I guess it's nice to kind of have a practice run of using the systems and making sure everybody knows what to do uh, in that scenario. But great that it was an alert. But so what's happened as far as damage that was actually caused by this? Yeah, just to get a couple of facts, it's the, uh, obviously there were some very heavy surges on Saturday morning. You know, we were having the, the tides were coming to high and low within a matter of a short period of time, sometimes 30, 45 minutes. So there were some big, um, some big, big volumes of water coming into our inlet on Saturday. Um, and then um, not, us unknowing, there was no um, alarm bells and nothing un- unusual. So we thought we, we got away lucky. And then on Monday morning, um, there happened to be a log a, tug, a tugboat towing a log boom out from the head of our inlet, uh, working its way towards Portal Burney. Um, so it um, annoyingly grabbed our the water line that feeds Eucluathot with their main water supply. So uh, that's not because that's obviously because it was no longer in its original spot, which is the bottom of the inlet, which is you know far clear from any kind of marine traffic. So um, there's the assumption there with these heavy uh, currents that some of the weights have must have been uh, dislodged off the pipe mm. and, uh, and then caused it to uh, be, you know, submerged halfway or near the surface and a larger vessel coming over uh, has snagged it and grabbed it. It's quite obvious that the pipe at both ends of the inlet have been pulled. You can see that the pipe at, um, and, uh, you can see that the pipe uh, was obviously tugged quite aggressively and then it finally snapped at a, a junction which caused even more alarm bells to go off at that point. And that's when our public crew, public works crew, uh, you know, knew there was something up, but it was hard to identify for the first uh, 30 minutes. Okay. So what has this done then to the water supply? So to our neighbor, uh, Yenkluwathot over in Atatsu, uh, um, there's another community there, about 250 people, which their main water supply right now is cut off. And uh, we're in the midst of repairing it. So they're right now on a do not use um, water and uh, and they're hauling water to keep their reservoir full. Hmm. And any timeline then? It sounds like it's not just a simple fix to get that back up and running. Well, we're trying to do the simple fix right now. The pipe is now repaired, and we have a West Coast weather day before us. So at a barge that's got to come from another area, can't make it around due to weather conditions. So we're hoping tomorrow morning uh, the crews will be installing the, the pipe back in. And uh, we're, we're anticipating another week. Um, so it's still going to be, uh, we're not we're not through it yet. And it's a bit of a struggle for our neighbors. 
Yeah, for for sure. Does this you mentioned then too? It kind of it's connecting the dots that these these surges were quite high uh, that came from this, and and like you said, if the pipe was in its normal place, it wouldn't have been snagged because vessels are there all the time. So, uh, can you make that connection though, or is it pretty well even even though you didn't we didn't see the damage caused from the the surges from the aftermath of what happened in Tonga that we can make that connection. Well, again, a little bit of horseshoe luck here. Uh, ministry, I think DFO has a has a testing unit here on one of our docks, and it's actually measuring currents uh, by by every minute. So uh, there's a bunch of very valuable data that's going to be coming uh, to the district here, so we can work with EMBC to see if this actually there is a, a dot to connect. And obviously, for a smaller community like us, uh, you know, we start having these big. Uh, cost. Uh, we're hoping that uh, they're going to be able to connect some dots and that we're going to be eligible for some uh, assistance. Right. Because do you have any idea then at this point what the repair bill is going to be? No, I'd just be guessing, but it's going to be north of, I'm going to guess, of you know, $150,000. It doesn't take much when you're calling people from other projects to race to Euclid to, uh, to put together water lines and, and uh, divers and barges. You know, this gets pretty costly. Right. And the, the mean, and with the people, too, that are now without that water, even if it's for uh, another seven days, I mean, that's got to be everything from drinking water to cooking water yeah. to just to everyday needs. Yeah, no, no, it's, uh, it's, it's really for a lot of us, it's unmanageable. So, uh, you know, we're, they're doing their tests and obviously uh, with uh, the concerns of the quality of the water, um, it's not uh, deemed safe to, to drink or use at this time. And uh, so they're on bottled water, but they're keeping their reservoir topped up. Okay. Does this, is it a one-off, do you think, in that kind of a bunch of things came together and this happened? Or is it something that's part of a bigger picture in that, does it need to be built back in a different way if we're going to anticipate more major weather events or more potential damage in the future? Well, I think you nailed it. Great question. At the end of the day, that pipe's been there for back and forth probably over 40 years and uh, if not 50 years uh, maybe not be the original pipe but starts to look about uh, the vulnerability of the water system over to Atatsu and I think once we get it back together I know the bigger question is how do we how do we ensure that this isn't going to happen together that that couldn't uh, mean that uh, you know a a land-based water supply uh, needs to happen there or a different type of upgraded um, underwater um, pipe there. So, you know, we, we have a lot of conversation to have afterwards, but uh, right now it's about getting our neighbors and those that community reconnected to the district's water supply so they can get back to their daily activities. And have you ever heard of in the 40 or 50 years that the pipe has been there or the pipe in some form has been there? Has anything like this ever happened before? Never. And I you know I've, I'm 50 and I've been in town here for 50 years and uh, I've never, we've never, for myself, we we never seen that aggressive of the fl- of the tide coming in and out. It's happened definitely before, but usually you would witness that over maybe a, an hour or two hour process. But when it's going in and out, uh, you know, in a very short period of time, uh, there's, there's a lot of water moving in a lot of the docks. You can see, you know, eddies were being created and world and and it looked like a washing machine. So it was quite violent out there. And again, this is something uh, that happened from uh, the tsunami surge from something, again, that happened uh, many, many miles away. It mm-hmm. makes you wonder, too, what if it was actually a small tsunami or what if it was uh, something, an earthquake or something much closer to home? Yeah, who knows? That's that's out of my pay grade. But I know that uh, right now it's uh, there's definitely some strong coincidences going on here. So we're, we're not getting too... Uh, 
we're not getting too deep in that right now. It's about fixing this lineup and, and working with our neighbours and, uh, and supporting everyone best we can. All right. Well, Mako, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Yeah, you take care, Jill. Have a great week. Well, earlier today, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business put out some information saying they were quite shocked to learn that the new policy of the five paid sick days is actually in some cases meaning that employers will have to pay for 10 days of sick pay and saying that this is not what they agreed to and it's certainly not what the B.C. government announced when it made that announcement. Annie Dormuth with CFIB spoke earlier about this with Mike Smith on his show. Take a listen, just a, just a very small part of what she had to say. Now, NBC, we have recently discovered, because now, of course, members and business owners are dealing with this policy change, that is actually based on an employee's start date. So in the example that the government, you know, provided online, this could potentially mean that an employee could be up to potentially be entitled up to 10 days if their employment started, for example, on May 1st, 2021. So they would be entitled from May 1st, five days to January 1st, 2022, when this came into effect, as well as another five days from April 30th, 2022. So their employment kind of start year or anniversary to May, basically April 30th, 2023. So potentially that could equal up to 10 days in one year, which of course, as we know, and we have just heard, was not what the government had communicated to the public or business owners. All right, that was Annie Dormuth, BC Provincial Affairs Director with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. So, so we wanted to talk to a business about this. Brad, Clou- Brad McLeod is the owner and managing partner of Sea Lovers Fish and Chips, and he's on the line with us now. Brad, thanks for taking some time with us. Hi, Jill. Nice to be here. Is this how you understood the policy as well, or, or what are your thoughts on how the sick days are actually calculated? Well, Joe, it's as usual with the NDP government. I can't figure out if they intentionally planned it this way and just pulled it over our, the business owner's eyes that it was only going to be five days, or that they don't understand business, and as usual, they've done something in a way that doesn't make any sense. And in my opinion, it's incompetence. I said, so I'm not sure if they planned it this way to tell us it was five days when really it can turn out to be up to 10 days for the year, or they don't even understand what they've written because it just makes no sense at all. You can't implement something starting January 1st but then turn around and put it also to the employee's anniversary date. It makes no sense. And I didn't realize that that was even in the legislation. I'm not sure how many people did, but as Annie was just explaining, so the government announcement was that there will be five days of employer-paid sick days that start January 1st, 2022. So we've started it this month, but then goes on to say, as Annie was saying there, that five additional days at the start of an employee's start date. That's where it gets a little murky in that wouldn't that also mean that employers would have to? So it, it's almost as if their people are banking those five days before they even begin working there. Well, w- the way I read it is that as of January 1st, all employees that have worked for 90 days and are under labor standards are eligible for five sick days. But if your start date, for example, was April 1st, you start with a new five. So you get five from January 1st till your start date, say April 1st, and now you start another five. So in theory, you could get paid 10 sick days during the year of 2022. 
and businesses have been hit hard enough by what's gone on with COVID and now with Omicron. And we talked about this with the NDP government that we don't disagree with the five sick days, but why put it on when we're in this situation and businesses are falling left, right and center. And now not only do they do it as five sick days, it's technically 10 for the first year. Is it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Is it just for the first year then? It's this overlap with the start of the year and then the potential start of an employee work, the, the start of their work? Yes, that's the way I understand it is. What they've done is they've jump-started the program to start effective for all employees January 1st. Then it, it, it doesn't line up. You would have assumed they would have done January 1st to December 31st is how it's going to work. But they've started everyone January 1st, but now they're saying it takes effect as well on your anniversary. So everyone's eligible to five right now starting January 1st, and then you start again on your anniversary. So if it's April 1st, you get another five. If it's not till September, that's where it starts. But then it goes yearly and it'll be five. But for the first year, there's the potential for 10 days in the year of 2022. Hmm. Which does seem a bit strange, given that it, it would be easy enough, wouldn't it, if if everybody gets five days per calendar year from January 1st to December 31st, yep. and you start in the middle of the year, then could it not have been prorated for the first year that if you have six months of employment, you get two and a half days? Yes, that's exactly how it should have been done. And that's how we assumed with it. We've already put together with our accountant how we were going to track it and everything, how it was going to be. And then we hit, hit hear about the legislation. We're going, oh, why'd they start at January 1st if that's not how it's going to work? Common sense would say you started January 1st and it goes forward. And you would have just prorated somebody if they were a new hire in June of this year, they would be eligible for two and a half. And then the next year they'd be a full five. But it's the NDP. There's no business sense with anything they do. Because Just isn't that kind of how it's done in companies that already pay for sick days? It's not as though you show up for work one day and you've got two weeks of sick days waiting for you. In a lot of cases, both sick, sick time and vacation time, it builds up as you go. Yes. Yes. And this, everyone was instantaneously given five days and we believed it was five days for the year of 2022. Now we find out it's five days instantaneously and has potential to be another five days, depending on what your anniversary date is. How much, like you said, too, you're not opposed to this. And business owners that I've talked to as well for various different sizes have said we're not opposed to this, but kind of touched on what you touched on, saying it's not the best timing, but OK, at least it was five days and not 10. How much of a difference does it make when an employer of whatever size, say somebody, an employer of your size business, how big of a difference does it make having to pay out, potentially pay these out to your employees? Well, Jill, to some businesses, they're holding on by the skin of their teeth right now. And this is just another nail in the coffin to businesses that have fought through the last two years with COVID. And they've been fighting to stay alive. And we all agreed in the business community the five days was going to come in and it was accepted. And that we didn't want it to come in now. We wanted to come in later. It came in now. But now we find out we're on the hook for 10 days. And it just it's just too much money and too many hits on small business. Uh, but, uh, but on the flip side of that, too, and I get what you're saying, but don't you also want a scenario where people aren't coming to sick? You want to encourage people to not come to work sick? Yes, but you've got to remember when the government started talking about sick days, they were going to be covering it. It was going to be covered under part of 
unemployment or WCB like they talked about because of COVID. And that's, I believe, how they should have introduced it right now and then slowly blended it over to employers and that, but it should have come into effect through the government system and then slowly weeded over. But as typical, they brought that up in the beginning with no intention of ever following through with it. Right, because they were providing, was it three and a half, or they were providing some days, weren't they? They were, and they implicated when this started that it was they were looking at whether it would be federal government, provincial government, and that's what they first talked about when they brought this all out, and they were using that as an example. Then, of course, when they bring it out, it's handed another expense to businesses and that with no notice. Right. As it is, though, um, it's not your understanding, is it, that you could bank sick days? And it sounds like the, the 10 days, this kind of overlap, again, would be for the first year. But it's not as though moving forward, employees could who don't use their sick days could carry them forward? I don't believe so. But again, I want to go through this kind of popped up today, uh, a surprise to everybody and that. And uh, I don't believe they can bank them, but I haven't been able to read through every single thing yet on it, waiting to see, because this caught me by surprise. Uh, The CFIB has called for a change to this, or at least to change the legislation, so it is based only on the calendar year, not on the calendar year, in addition to the employee start date. If they did make that change, would that be enough? Would that be okay? Yes, because as we talked about, I talked about on your show when this first came out, we understood the five days. We want them to delay it. We understand I mean, everybody's in a tough spot. We want no employees coming to work sick. We don't want it spreading and that, and we understand that. But we believe the NDP need to come forward and straighten this mess out. And we don't know, I don't know if they made a mistake in writing this up and because they don't have the business experience and it shows in a lot of things they do, or did they mislead us all? I don't know which one that is, but I call for them to step forward Ravi Callan should step forward and straighten this out. Plain and simple, he needs to step forward and do what he should and straighten this out because what they announced in January 1st is not what they've implemented. Hmm. And that's what we have a problem with. And just to clarify something you said off the top, so as it stands now, as of January 1st, though, your employees, they would have had to have been with you for three months to to qualify for the five days? Yes, my understanding is it's, it's, it's as... Once their probation period's up and they're in effect under labor standards, then it takes into effect. So if somebody was starting mid-year then, why would they qualify for the original five days? I don't know. Don't know. That's the way they we explained. We understood it was that it was all employees and they announced it that way. And we took it as, okay, that's the way they're doing it. They're picking a start date. It's going to be calendar year and that's the way they're going to do it. But that's not the way they did it. All so right. it it just it just it doesn't make sense to me the whole thing and it's usually when the NDP implements stuff it doesn't make a lot of sense to the business community because it doesn't usually follow business practices. All right. Well, hopefully we do get some clarification or some more information on this. Uh, Brad, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it, Joe. Thank you very much.